0: Hi everybody and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host Rutger and you'll hear from our other co-host Jason very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data analytics company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Remember. Any opinions or views expressed by our guest or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone, and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. Today, we'll be talking to Ed Rivadavia. Ed is originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil, but he spent much of his early years in Europe and the United States, learning three languages other than Portuguese along the way. Most recently a VP of Digital Strategy at Sony Music Nashville, where he worked with some of the biggest names in country. Ed has always been, and still is, a metalhead at heart. What's particularly interesting about Ed's career is how you can trace the trajectory of the role of marketing in the music industry from radio promotion or old media marketing in the 90s to trying to get a handle on ways to use the internet or new media in the early 2000s and then to settling into what we now know as digital marketing and digital strategy in the 2010s. Ed's global and multi-genre experience imbues his perspective on digital trends in the music industry with nuance and prescience. So, without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Ed Rivadavia. So you were born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but by your late teens you had toured the world at least according to your all-music bio. Was this in a music capacity or just a function of your family moving around a lot?
1: Yeah, no, I was just along for the ride. Um, my dad <laughs> used to work for a, a multinational company that um, moved him around pretty much every every two or three years. So um, we left Brazil and came here to the U.S. and then went to Venezuela and then to Italy. And um, it was, uh, you know, a bit of a, a little tough for a kid at the time, but also Fantastic experience, you know, in terms of exposure to other cultures and other languages. And um, I mean, I didn't speak English till I was 10 years old, you know, so just a a really cool way to grow up and make friends, you know, in different places. Yeah, I speak Portuguese like I do English, you know, it's a native tongue. And then my my Spanish and Italian are a little sketchy, but I can, you know, I can get by.
0: (laughs) You have an affinity for British heavy metal in particular, but it solidified when you lived in Milan, Italy during the mid 80s. And you even created your own Mm -hmm. heavy metal fanzine in the process. Can you paint that scene for us, including some of the wilder stories, if you have any? You know, Hard Rock and Metal was on on the ascent
1: at the time. Uh, I think the one difference uh, is that in Europe, we were all uh, thrash metal kids. You know, we love our Metallica Slayer, Anthrax, And, um, you know, not this, even though we did like the American bands like Motley Crue and Twisted Sister, um, it was, um, we we basically worshipped Black Sabbath and the new wave of British heavy metal um, more so than Aerosmith and Kiss that we love, you know, I love those bands too. And, you know, they're some of my favorites. So the scene was very uh, wasn't as colorful as what, you know, Americans kind of uh, consider uh, hard or remember as hard rock and metal of the 80s. Um, and uh, and this was the first half of the decade, too, before metal became so popular that, you know, bands like Bon Jovi and Poison were being called metal, even though there was nothing heavy about them. So, um I guess, I don't know if I was lucky or or snobbish in that, um, you know, I kind of came up with that European kind of mindset. And, and you know, I went carried on into from thrash into death and black metal, more like the extreme sounds, which I still love. Um, although I, I love all kinds of, of music these days. But, um, but yeah, and, you know, and, and so the scene was, you know, uh, at the time, rock was... Dangerous, right? I mean, um, one of the thing people one of the things people don't seem to realize is that part of the reason rock isn't as popular today as it was then is that it's mom and dad's music now. Back then, <laughs> you know, rock was scaring the shit out of parents and uh, and freaking them out just like hip hop does today, and that's what youth music should do. So, um, you know, uh, shows were scary. Uh, the, the, the record stores. You know, you'd be uh, making your way through a bunch of uh, leather clad. Bodies and older kids kind of, you know, threatening to beat you up or steal your record. So it was uh, it was a a kind of uh, kind of hard to believe, but, you know, there was a little bit more of that, uh, element of a really kind of edgy, uh, scene. And, um, you know, the, the fanzine thing was really just my friends and I, you know, pr- trying to print up lyrics as, as we could understand them from the songs and sharing them, you know, uh, in school after getting our first Commodore 64s that we could print something on.
0: <laughs> did you actually get beat up at any concerts or anything? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, nah, I never got my ass kicked. I did, you know, feel threatened. And you know, we, we, we honestly missed my friends and I, we missed a ton of shows that we were just too scared to go to, you know, we were 14, wow. um, 15, if we had been 17 and 18, we would have been kicking ass, I guess. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and those sh- were those shows like local Italian
1: metal bands. No, I mean, I saw, um, uh, Gary Moore and, uh, you know, uh, Scorpions came through and, uh, uh, accept Dokken. you know, it was, um, it was those kinds of shows and, you know, um, But I really didn't see nearly as many shows as I I wish I had, because it was just that, you know, at 14, I was just a little bit, you know, on the young side to just go off and and fight my way in.
0: So why did you end up returning to Brazil and then moving on to study business? And how did that eventually lead you into the music industry professionally?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I did get back to Brazil for my junior year in high school and, you know, basically because of my dad's job again, moving us back finished high school there, started college there. Uh, the music industry there was, you know, uh, in, I, I didn't even know where to begin to try to get into it. So I went ahead and got a business degree with the thought, you know, um, it's, it's kind of a, the family legacy is marketing. So let me go in here and check this out and, um, worked a couple of years at uh, Kellogg's right out of college in Brazil. Um, the cereal company, you know, doing uh, marketing for them, but I hated wearing a suit and, um, you know, I had, I still had I guess you know a, a dream of running away with the circus of the music industry, and uh, I, I kind of chucked it all in um, in uh, '94 uh, and came to the U.S. Uh, to get my masters and and uh, and try to get into the music industry.
0: So you did make your way to Chicago for your MBA, where you actually landed a job in radio promotion. What was the industry like in Chicago in those days? And what skills or knowledge sets have you been able to transfer over from your days in radio during peak industry success, really?
1: Yeah, you know, um, Chicago was, I ended up there just because it was one, uh, Columbia. Uh, Chicago was one of the few colleges I found that had a, a master's program geared towards music, entertainment, business, um, you know, and, and I needed a visa. <laughs> so it was it was basically uh, a matter of pr- being pragmatic. Um, once I got there, I, you know, um, at the time, physical distribution was king in the music industry still. So uh, every major label had a branch office in pretty much every major city, and you had six major labels. So I, I started interning uh, for free at the Chicago uh, PGD, uh, Polygram Group Distribution Branch um, uh, in the city, which is really where a lot of the kids got their start, you know. And I interned for free for about a year before I landed a job at AM Records, um, which was one of the Polygram labels. Um, and, you know, answering calls, uh, grabbing coffee and um, helping the radio promotion guys, uh, you know, uh, do their jobs uh, Buying and, and eventually I got hired to be the coordinator in the department. And that also included buying concert tickets for the department and organizing guest lists. Uh, you know, a lot of people in my generation kind of did a lot of those jobs, spending a lot of time in the mail room and so on. Um, but at the time, you know, the branches uh, uh, outside of New York and LA, they were pretty much uh, focused on sales and, and uh, radio promotion. So, between the two, I thought radio seemed more interesting and that's what kind of got me going there. I had a really great mentor called uh, Ross Grierson, who was uh, the national radio guy at A&M and um, a totally old school promo guy, you know, like out of the movies, kicked my ass and, you know, uh, taught me everything I knew and just really, you know, put me through the ringer, made me pay my, my dues for sure, but really toughened me up for the business. And, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, you know, about promotion is that, you know, radio... Was the, the heart and soul of the music industry, and, and frankly, still kind of is, you know. Uh, so it was a really great way to get introduced to the music business in general, and really understand the differences between the industry um, compared to what I thought, you know, it would be with my my, my marketing background and you know um, an industry that's so reliant on radio, uh, which is you know a very unique thing to the music industry, um, uh, and, and and marketing kind of took a back seat, at least in the traditional sense. And I think that's uh, part of what we we've, we've seen in the last few years is kind of that becoming
0: a more, you know, more of a part of what we do. How does writing fit into all this, especially like you're writing for all music?
1: Yeah, you know, that's 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 a happy accident. You know, um, in uh, 1999, uh, Polygram was sold to Universal, a um, uh, huge consolidation. And uh, by then I was the regional uh, A&M uh, promo rep in Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, we got merged with Interscope and Geffen. So there were three of us and the, the Interscope guy kept his job and we, the other two guys lost their jobs. And, you know, so hundreds of people were basically laid off in that year from Polygram. And uh, as I was looking for my next job, um, I had noticed, you know, I I, I was already um, tech savvy to a point uh, the all music guide was a, um, popular resource uh, in a very early web, the first place, you know, a lot of us geeks started seeing information about music. So we could go read about music on the web instead of in magazines and books. And, um, <clears throat> as I was sitting there, you know, interviewing for my next job, um, I noticed that they didn't have, um, uh, didn't seem they were missing a lot of metal reviews. So I just wrote them a note and said, Hey, can I try to write for you guys? And they said, sure. Send us a few, uh, a few, uh, examples. And I guess that was my audition. And, um uh I, I don't think I was particularly good, but they really didn't have this is, you know, the dark days of the late nineties when metal was, you know, uh, uh uh bedeviled in the music industry. Uh just how it should be. Uh but um but so I kinda started there and um I spent the next spent the next thirteen years contributing for them. Never worked for them, you know. We were all contributors um writing bios and reviews. Um and, um, even after that went away, I mean, I, I still write, um, almost every day, but writing has always been, a my, my side hustle, I guess, as you'd say, um, paid and unpaid. Um, and it's really kind of over time, it became my, 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 my channel to, to remaining a fan, you know, it's how I really process mm-hmm. my discovery of new music. Half the time I'm writing about music that I just got for the first time. And I'm, you know, processing that. And I mean, I, I write something pretty much every day and, uh, it's like meditation for me these days. It's, um. It's uh, it's the the fan side uh, versus the, um, the the business side, which I do in my you know regular day jobs at labels.
0: So by the two thousands, you landed back in New York, which you had mm-hmm. lived in previously, and you transitioned from radio to the new media teams at Windup and Roadrunner Records. Was there something special that these labels were doing in the digital space at that time, and yes follow-on question to that what was it like to live through such a tumultuous time both for the music industry and also for New York City especially
1: yeah you know I landed at wind up uh still in the radio promotion department but um Napster had just uh kind of started taking off and um you know I I, to me that I immediately saw you know the future of the music industry in there um and then this and wind up at the time, you know, it was a pretty small label. They had Creed, which was the a monster band, but it was a, you know, very much an indie label. But if I, I would say they had 50 employees, but they had eight people in the digital uh, department, uh, new media, as it was called back then. So they were really ahead of their time. Um, the And so I transitioned to that department as really the junior staffer to figure things to, to learn um, and, and did, you know, learn from some great people. and. Um, From there, I jumped over to Palm Pictures, where through a fluke, I found myself heading up a department. Palm Palm Pictures was Chris Blackwell's multimedia company after he sold Island Records. Um, And, uh, you know, I still did a a little bit of Bob Marley stuff, but uh, they had a a a movie division, a a video DVD division, manga, anime, and music. So I spent four years there, actually kind of, you know, figuring out what digital was and new media. We were one of the few labels that did a a deal with the illegal Napster before it went away. Um, I was there when iTunes first came around and, you know, had to go preach it to my colleagues and, you know, convince them that we should, we should do iTunes. (laughs) It'd be a good thing. Um, which has been a pattern for, you know, technology, um, over the last few years. So, um, and then at Roadrunner, uh, you know, four years after leaving wind up with an eight man department, I was in a one person department in digital and, you know, spent two years there, uh, until the very end when I was able to hire somebody. But, you know, uh, at that point, YouTube was coming up and my space was becoming a thing. And, you mm-hmm. know, we, we, we had Nickelback, you the, the biggest band in, in, in the country and I was still running, uh, the iTunes account and, you know, uh, doing, you know, downloads and, and, and singles and whatnot. And, um it was all a great learning experience in terms of, you know, um, having to learn and then teach my colleagues and, you know, also learn from them. But, um, it was a, it was a tumultuous time for sure, because, you know, so much, uh, skepticism and, um, you know, resistance to change, um, in, in, in most quarters, you know, the digital new media guy was often seen as, you know, the problem. <laughs> uh, why is this guy coming around and trying to change the way we do things? Um, but again, just, uh, you know, for those of us who like solving problems and, and, and um, you know, and technology and, and, and moving things forward, it was a, a really great, ex- exciting time. And, you know, even as the industry was, was, like you said, you know, it was a tumultuous time, the industry was in decline. Um, you know, those of us who bet on technology are mostly the ones who made it through that really tough period, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, 9-11 happened at the same time too. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. One other thing I'll say is that, you know, it was during this transition to digital distribution and mm-hmm. new technologies that I feel like traditional marketing and real marketing started coming into the music industry a little more. Um, you know, radio is again, a unique uh, uh, promo tool of the music industry, you know, m- other, Entertainment industries don't have radio, you know, they don't have such a powerful tool that could get the job done. And, you know, in the up until the 90s, there was, you know, some people thought that the sum total of a marketing plan was handing the song off to radio and hoping for the best. And if the promo guys could make it work, it was a hit. And if they couldn't, it wasn't a hit to begin with. (laughs) Um, So. Part of the music industry's transition to, you know, digital was also a transition to relying less on radio, incorporating more marketing pr- practices. And um, and frankly, the other big f- change was starting to listen to consumers. Um, mm. Used to ship our records to stores and say, see, ya. you know, if you don't like it, you can return it. But we don't want to talk to the consumers. We don't want to know. Well, with the wind Internet, the, the consumers started, you know, beating down the castle, you know, the castle walls. And um, you know, a lot of what digital has become over these years is audience development. You know, and and um, and speaking to that audience. And you know, um, if I were to, when I'm asked today to, you know, well, everything's digital. How do you define digital strategy in 2020? I say, well, most mostly it's audience development. You know, we're 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 dealing with consumers hand to hand. We've got we talk to them through social media, the website, newsletters, um, advertising. You know, it's 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 very much about you know uh, giving consumers what they want, and the fact is now consumers dictate where, where music goes, and not the other way around. You know, with the formats and 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 the, the the platforms that they want to consume it in.
2: Uh, I've always been curious since you were there in the beginning of iTunes, mm-hmm. the that ninety nine cent price point uh, mm-hmm. for a single, or you know, I think it was it was still nine ninety nine for an album, I think, right for the most part, or at least it was mm-hmm. before yep. it went away, but um. Was there a lot of back and forth with Apple when it came to that, you know, between like the copyright owners and the labels and stuff and 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 iTunes and that team? Um, you know, was there a discussion or was that more of kind of like a, a mandated, nope, this is what we're doing, and uh, either hop on board or not? Some people don't may not remember is that when iTunes launched,
1: they only had the major labels, however many there were at the time, five or four, I forget. Um, in the, uh, you know, they basically did the deal with the major labels, and it wasn't until maybe six months later that most independents got brought in and I was at an independent. So, um, I want to say iTunes launched in April. And then in August, I found myself in Cupertino in a conf- in a big auditorium getting lectured by Steve jobs, along with all these, you know, hundreds of other indie guys about mm-hmm. iTunes and, you know, him basically pitching us on this. Cause it was still, you know, he was still trying to convince us that this was worth it. And indie labels were going to get a, a lower, um, uh, uh royalty than, uh, than the majors. Um, and I totally took it for granted, you know, I mean, I I wasn't at the time in in awe (laughs) of jobs or anything, but now I think back and I'm like, damn, that was a pretty cool experience, you know, and uh, I mean, you had a private keynote. Well, you know, there was, there was (laughs) hundreds of us there, you know, a a bunch of other indie label geeks, but, uh, but it was definitely a a cool experience and, you know,
0: and and then iTunes became what it became. So I'm curious, since you have sort of lived the changes of the music industry, do you think there is some knowledge or experience lost, especially as it pertains to music history with on-demand streaming versus like a physical record collection? Like, obviously we have all of the music and information we could ever need or want at our fingertips, but do you think that has helped or hindered or neither how consumers engage with the actual cultural history of music? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, you know, affected it, uh, but, you know, it is it's, it's it, it is what it is. You know, I mean, um, um, uh, w- there were hundreds of classical composers, you know, hundreds of years ago, but nobody remembers anybody but Bach and Beethoven, you know, and I'm sure a hundred years from now, um, people won't know any metal bands except for Metallica. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's the nature of history. I mean, if not for the technology to keep us informed, you know, to go back and check on it that we have now, you know, all this stuff fades away over time. So, um, I think, you know, certainly with, you know, now that consumers have access to an infinite amount of music instead of having to, you know, make their choices, you know, on a limited budget, um, Brand building is what's changed. Right. I mean, used to be my generation would commit to certain genres like I did metal and we it would, it would kind of become our thing. And we would, you know, have to commit to certain, you know, bands and certain uh, genres uh, as part of, you know, determining who we were as people. Right. Um, today, music listeners, teenagers are still, you know, approaching music in a way that they interact with it and it defines who they are. But now they're 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 being, they're de- they're interacting with millions of songs and all kinds of genres so you know um it's it's uh, ultimately people of my generation can complain and and, bitch and moan but it's not you know it's not up to them anymore it's, it's 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 moved on and um and the fact is kids are gonna you know uh interact with music the way they're going to these days and they're going to have, it's much more fragmented. So as an industry, you know, that's basically the challenge we have is, is we're no longer able to control the means of distribution, the, 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 you know, limit the, the, which artists are being consumed and how, you know, through, you know, walled gardens like radio where only certain artists can play and, you know, have the budgets to go get to the top of the charts. Um, so, Um, what, you know, some of that education maybe, or, or rather, I guess, um, what we thought was information, you know, knowledge about music as we saw it back then, where we knew a lot about a few bands. Now the kids know a little something about, you know, hundreds and they're not going to get as invested maybe, uh, into each individual artist, but they're going to be just as invested in the music. and, And that's ultimately, um, on, it's, it's just, it's up to us to make the pivot, you know?
0: So is it fair to characterize you as a metalhead with the country twang? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny you know um uh, i do like like i said i like all all kinds of genres i grew up on metalhead but you know these days i listen to mostly music from the 70s and and uh you know classic rock and and uh i mean i i like jazz i like blues um and and country too you know i mean i, I like the uh I, i'm a student of music so I, I i've long you know been listening to the classics and whatnot. So. Um, When I landed here in Nashville and started working with uh, country music, um, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of great country music going on. Um, I was living in New York, uh, my wife and I with two little kids in a a one bedroom Brooklyn apartment. um, And um, this is about 10 years ago. And we we, she had family in Texas and I had an opportunity to go to do a job there. So that's what got us out of New York and um, really started my only experience outside of record labels. Um, I worked in the uh, licensed music for business space you know, basically the muzaks of the world that get music played in, uh, in, in brands and, and, and stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got into e-commerce and, uh, I did some business development and built some e-commerce stores. And, and, and some of those were country labels and country artists. And, and that's what led me back to Nashville or to Nashville and back to the labels. And, uh, and I found myself running digital marketing and strategy at, uh, at Sony Nashville Worked with some great, great artists here. Luke Combs, Kane Brown, Maren Morris, Old Dominion, um, Miranda Lambert. Really, really good time.
0: Is there a different approach you've had to take um, working with country artists versus like rock artists that you worked with in the past? Or is it pretty, I don't know, similar across the board?
1: You know, it's, it's, each one has their quirks. Country artists are are very, very polite. (laughs) Uh, I'll say this country artists, you know, you, uh, you can walk into a studio, they'll pull out a guitar and they'll jam and they're ready to go. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't need uh, too much remixing or, you know, uh, uh, I've worked with artists who needed a little bit more (laughs) post-production for lack of a better word, Uh, (laughs) but you know, country artists are, are good to go, man. And, and, they're they're not as difficult as some other genres but no you know listen um this is where i've worked pretty much every genre of music at this point i mean i worked at a&m and rca uh major labels where you know the artist i was working the foo fighters and avril lavigne and barry manilow at the same time uh and the strokes and dave matthews and you know and so this is where my training as a marketer um both in terms of you know practic practically and, and 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 mentally comes in you know i mean i'm I, I, I know music. Um, I, I I know consumers. And because I'm a digital marketer, I'm listening to consumers and helping them get what they want instead of feeling like I have to, you know, make them do what I want and, you know, finding that middle ground. And so, you know, over the years and country was no, no difference, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that being a metalhead necessarily helped me work metal records more effectively than other genres. In, in, in fact, it may have hindered because I was I, I had more preconceptions than what I had to learn to work, you know, a Christine Aguilera record or a Whitney Houston record. And um, and again, because I'm a marketer, I go in and I do my research and, you know, I understand historically enough about the history of music. I'm a, a, a broad music geek um, to fa- to plug it into the, the, the marketing practices and uh, and identify which platforms may make sense for that artist and which, you know, which, which promotions are going to make sense for this artist, but not that artist. And so, you know, that's the, that's the day to day of my job over the last 25 years that, that hasn't changed is um, um, that's the the challenge I enjoy, frankly, um, more so. Um, that's why the, the writing is my, my fan side. You know, I can, I can be a, a fan uh, when I'm writing and when I'm listening and, um, and it's very much different from when I'm, I'm at the office, you know, kind of, um, uh, learning and also, you know, finding ways to break artists of, of different genres.
0: So pop and hip hop obviously dominate and but country is still managing to increase its market share, potentially thanks to you as yeah. someone <laughs> as someone who has um, overseen digital strategy and marketing for big country and hard rock acts alike. What can either metal bands or any band really learn from country artists beyond hoping for that, you know, once in a decade tool album. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah. Metal's in a funny spot because like I said, you know, most vital youth music, uh, certainly in the 20th century and, and in the rock era is about, you know, uh, music that allows kids to, uh, Rebel against their parents. I mean, you're not even just talking Elvis and Beyond. You're talking Frank Sinatra. (laughs) You know, parents hated Sinatra when he was a young crooner, and you know their their daughters were losing their minds over Frank. Um, So metal, you know, except for that brief period in the '80s where you know it went mainstream and got all colorful, um, you know, metal is one of the ultimate um, underground anti-genre. So I don't know what we're doing wrong, um, where, you know, kids aren't feeling as compelled to, uh, rebel with heavy metal as they are with, with hip hop. Um, I think part of it is, uh, most of the older heavy metal fans are are a little bit too conservative. And, you know, I still have too many friends that think streaming should go away and are talking about audio fidelity, like that matters anymore. And, um, (laughs) and then you've got this younger set that maybe, you know, got disconnected from the older one. And and because of what you said, that there's not as much uh, time and and inclination to be looking at the history of the genre and maybe, you know, getting into that. Um, Ultimately, I think it's becoming more and more of a specialist genre um, that needs to find a way to break out of there. And, um, unless, you know, a new band comes along that, that, that really kind of connects with the, uh, the zeitgeist, I guess that that's, I don't see that happening. Um, country music, you know, has to some degree, it's, 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 a uh, it's a very clear path in, um, uh, because of its, you know, it, it has a home base in Nashville, you know, it has a consumer that, um, is, uh, dedicated and country music has evolved a lot, you know, I mean, um, as, when I got here, you know, I used to joke that if country music didn't have, you know, uh, the conversation about what's real country and what's not real country to talk about, they'd have nothing to talk about at all. Because, you know, all the way back to Johnny Cash, you know, there were people saying, well, that's not real country. And then, you know, the outlaws, that's not real country, you know, and and, and, and this whole debate. So. Most of country music today is actually very modern and, and actually very in, in touch with the times. I mean, um, uh, in many respects, uh, country music is rock and pop. Uh, there's a, with a few country elements thrown on top. Um, I was listening to uh, Blake Shelton's "God's Country" last week, and I, I was halfway through the song before I realized it wasn't the Nickelback song. It's identical. <laughs> It's, I mean, Blake, sorry, buddy, but, you know, uh, I hope you'll we'll get in trouble for this, but his vocal, his the, everything about the song, it's a Nickelback song. So that's one of the biggest country hits of the last year. So country, whether it's doing it on purpose or not, is, you know, um, incorporating other genres. And hip hop is next. I mean, you know, there's been some artists who have been incorporating pop and hip hop uh, very effectively. Kane Brown is, you know, I'm, I'm a homer, but Kane is brilliant at this. And um, guess what? traditional country fans are going to continue complaining but there's enough young fans that can resonate with the music culturally as well as you know the sounds are still relevant enough um, for them to like versus metal which I think may not be doing as good a job of staying relevant um, and uh, and speaking to the kids you know in the language they, they can understand
2: the first time I went to Nashville I was I was really blown away by the focus there is on the song itself mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to the singer or the artist and And I I really just found that so um, refreshing, I guess, because, um, you know, I came up in in the boy band, you know, girl band era and Mm -hmm. to see like a really I mean, I I would pop into bars where it was just like a songwriter's night and the singers were just there to deliver the song and like people were really listening to the lyrics. Can you talk a little bit about like, you know, kind of where how, how you see that, you know, as a unique kind of feature in country music and kind of where that might be going in the in the near future?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question, because I think that that may explain some of, you know, country's ability to remain, you know, uh, viable and and evolving. And even if it's partly in its own island, in a world where where kids no longer see genres or even stop to think about it, you know, crossing over and people becoming fans, even though they don't realize it's country music and don't care that it's country music, which, you know, I think the Nashville experience is so unique because, uh, you know, Kids do come down here, and the system has been set up over time where um, you have to cut your teeth and you know uh, go play the uh, the honky tonks and go through that process. and And I'll give you this, you know, uh, having lived in Austin, Texas, Austin is a music town supposedly, and it, it's a great town, you know, and 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 uh, but there's no industry there, you know. I mean. Nashville has a full blown music industry, you know, uh, infrastructure like New York or L.A. There's labels, publishers, managers, um, even tech companies, you know. So um, when artists come here, there's still a very it's not an easy path, but it's a pretty, you know, um, uh, clear path to. Entering to 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 giving it a shot in Nashville, you know, you you know, paying your dues a certain way, and whether someone takes a chance on your talent because you know, and and they and it's a label or a publisher or an agent, uh, whichever one comes first, there are all these people here, you know, actively looking to nurture this talent. And what I found in Austin, which was a little disappointing, was that. It was there was no community. There was no industry. Everybody everybody was out for themselves and, you know, dealing with what they could scrap together. And Austin, the city itself, despite South by Southwest, wasn't investing in a music scene the way that, you know, Nashville's music city. It's their bread and butter. I mean, you know, more so than New York and L.A. This is what the city, you know, is known for and what it's going to, you know, invest money in. So um, as long as Nashville remains, you know, a, a, a music town by definition, it's gonna, you know, continue to provide that infrastructure, and that's why there's so many artists coming out here now, you know, and have been for years that work in different genres too. Not only because they can afford to live here instead of New York and LA, although that may change post COVID, um, but because you know it, it 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 still provides most of the the music industry, you know, players and and opportunities um, in uh, in a smaller, uh, still very competitive but smaller uh, 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 city.
0: So speaking of genres with the sense of place, what's up with metal in the Nordics and why is rock so big in Latin America relative to the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. Um, It's, it it goes back to the cultural, you know, connections that, that music uh, has, right. Uh, As, as teenagers, when we first get into music, um, we're looking to define who we are as people through music. And so, the bottom line is that, you know, rock music still resonates culturally to those countries in a way that it doesn't, um, you know, to others. I mean, the um, the Nordic thing, I'm not sure I have a great theory for that. I mean, the Latin thing, interestingly, you know, a lot of people still ask me, why is metal so big in South America? And I think, frankly, a little bit is it has to do with uh, religious oppression, you know, uh, rebellion in South America in these, you know, Catholic countries is defined by uh, railing against religion. So these kids, when they want to piss off their parents, which is what you want to do when you, are starting to listen to music, they, they still get that from heavy metal because it's, it's the thing that's going to shock their parents the most. Yeah. <laughs> um, And and I guess in Scandinavia, too, I mean, you know, we don't talk about it where it's not as talked about, but uh, a lot of the Scandinavian countries are actually very, you know, uh, very Catholic and and, and religious, fundamentally speaking. So, you know, in terms of like, uh, I know Norway, I guess, has a reputation as that. And so it's no coincidence that, you know, the most satanic heavy metal you've ever heard came out of Norway, which, you know, back in the 90s, um, you know, was uh, the conservative side of the country was extremely, you know, um,
0: uh, religious. So, much of your music industry experience has been localized to the American market, but you speak four languages and you've lived on multiple continents. As digitization proliferates globally, do you foresee American and or Western dominance in the music marketplace waning? And is there anything important the industry should realize about different ways that different markets or cultures interact with music and technology? Yeah,
1: I think it's um, already clear that international music is is growing in popularity and gaining more, you know, penetration both in America and just, you know, uh, dominating more um, uh, playlists abroad versus American and, and I guess, UK-based music. And that's absolutely a reflection of uh, the Internet and the, uh, you know um, – and and the the dispersal of music from different places. So Latin music, you know, uh, YouTube is such a vital platform for for, for that, and you know, um, it's continues to grow and gain, and and become more popular because of you know uh, knowing how to leverage that super powerful platform to you know promote itself. TikTok is you know everybody's talking about TikTok these days, but you know that's basically uh, uh, the same thing. I mean, consumers on TikTok. You know, these are Gen Z, millennials, you know, generally very young consumers who are, again, forming their music and personality habits as we speak. Um, They don't know format. They don't know age. You know, you've got hits breaking out of TikTok that are 40 years old and, you know, many more that would have never uh, landed on a major label in the first place, with you know the uh, the way majors or or, or indies you know uh, do traditional A and R, and so consumers are basically you know determining that. And some of the biggest songs on that have broken out of TikTok aren't in English, you know, and they're they're from different countries. And again, these kids aren't you know getting excited about this music based on a full song. It's it's a fifteen second clip, so um, they you know sometimes it's just gibberish to them if they don't speak the language, but it's a great clip that they can, you know, create something to because it's all about a meme, right? It's, um, it's, uh, it's meme culture at its best. So um, it's inevitable, I think that, you know, as formats and barriers continue to crumble, you're going to have, you know, uh, this Western dominance in, in music which again, you know, we we feel it it seems more dominant for us who are actually here in the Western world. Um, It's gonna continue to to erode and you are gonna have, you know, more artists from different countries who have global success um, and, you know, at the same time, those kids may never learn that that artist is from country A, B, or C, but it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, again, it's it's going to be the brand building challenge remains, where you know long term careers are going to be tougher and tougher. Uh, Short term bursts for a lot more artists are going to be more you know frequent. I think, um, and it's just uh, because the technology drives. Uh, fashions and, you know, and and music consumption these days, um, you know, I definitely feel that we're seeing uh, this globalization in effect, like maybe never before.
0: And how do you think the potential Microsoft acquisition of TikTok will factor into the future of the platform, digital marketing more generally, and the consumption of music?
1: I'll wait to see if it actually happens, um, you know, but... I, I guess I'll say this, you know, there's TikTok, there's Triller, there, there's an, any number of platforms uh, trying to do this. Uh, Instagram obviously just launched Reels. Uh, or is about to depending on where, what part of the world you're, you're sitting in. Um, and ultimately what this does is it speaks not to TikTok, but the experience. And this is something I preach to everybody that'll listen uh, is that, you know, um, TikTok it has become a success because of, you know, how these kids are interacting with it. But we have more to learn. Not, what we have to learn is not from TikTok itself, but from how this experience defines music consumption in the future. So these kids are consuming 15-second songs, whether it's going to be on TikTok or Instagram Reels or on Triller. And so as an industry, we need to acknowledge that and realize that that's the way we're going forward. You know, And does it mean that we'll, you know, we should pivot our, our deals to, you know, be more UGC based instead of, you know, download or streaming based for like a full song, you know, we, we need to be ready to, you know, uh, market and consume media uh, based on song snippets. So um, I, I think the most important thing about TikTok, you know, as we'll look back on it in a few years is just, you know, how it showed, you know, it, it, it reflected how this next generation of music consumers is going to consume and they're the ones we have to, to cater to. So we better get, our asses in gear and figure out how to do that you know
0: so just to sort of sum all that up what digital trends should we be looking out for right now and what should artists and other music industry professionals consider when strategizing their digital marketing campaigns
1: yeah this is always a thorny thing because you know i've been doing digital now for 20 years and um we're always looking at a bunch of different technologies Waiting for the one that's going to raise their hands, you know. So, I, I've been on TikTok or and musically for five years, but it wasn't until a year ago that it became obvious that this thing was going to go and it was going to be the next thing. And you know, same was true as MySpace and, and Facebook. You know, what I mean, uh, and Spotify. You know, each one of those things. So, um, I don't have the crystal ball in terms of telling you what's what. What that next platform is going to be, um, but uh, the only thing you know, I, I'm pretty confident of is that. Um, the watching for them is the only thing we can do, you know, and, and continuing to try new things, <clears throat> and you know, testing the new platforms uh, as they come through, so we can identify what the opportunity it may be, and then you know, watch for the the consumer uh, behavior to see if they actually adopt it in mass. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, I think the trends are going to be. Uh, dictated clearly by the consumers and, and, and how they want to consume music. And as an industry, we'd be foolish to, you know, uh, and I think we've, we've crossed this Rubicon by now. Uh, We'd be foolish to think that we're dictating these things. Um, You know, now it's, it's up to us to, you know, give our consumers what they want and cater to, you know, the way that they're consuming. And, um, and there you go. I mean, you know, COVID in some respects is going to affect that too, because the touring industry, which, you know, has been, Growing and growing, you know, pretty much un, um, unchecked for 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 uh, decades. That suddenly had to contend with this huge issue. But that doesn't mean that the touring industry is over. or Anything, but if anything, how did, are they going to emerge from this with you know doing every, exactly what they used to do, but doing some other new things to you know uh, account for you know virtual uh, uh, performance. I mean, why? You know, how how are how are they going to blend virtual? Opportunities in with the physical ones instead of ignoring the virtual ones because they can make more money on the physical ones. And how's that, you know, uh, demand and uh, and uh, availability gonna gonna evolve? So, um, so yeah, I guess there's 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 a thought for you. I'm mean, you know maybe the next uh, thing we, we should look at is how how that whole interaction in terms of performance uh, for artists is gonna evolve in the post COVID experience.
2: I'm curious because you know I you know we talked a little bit already in this discussion about young people and seeing music as, and culture as a way to kind of experiment with identification and rebellion and things that we all go through when we're young. Mm -hmm. How do you see kind of the changing digital landscape affecting people in their mid thirties, forties, you know, people who are, you know, mid career building families, things like that. Is there, do you feel like music consumption or just kind of music in general in terms of how they interact with it in daily life? Do you see that changing at all? Um, or is it just kind of the same old story? Like they're just too busy for, the, for that kind of stuff.
1: No, I think, you know, people are always going to interact with music. If anything, you know, the challenge of more entertainment options, which has always been an issue is just much more so now because, you know, there's so much exciting, so, so much exciting going on in the video gaming uh, in, with gaming and um, in uh, uh, digital video opportunity, you know, uh, platforms like Netflix, Disney Plus and so on. So that's going to be a, a, a bigger competition moving forward. I think what you touched on in terms of, you know, older consumers, what I think is going to be very exciting in the next few years is that um, we just now are reaching the point where streaming is uh, established and saturated for real. Right. Um, and that's been our battle in the industry is to, you know, great. We're finally on the up again and we've, we, we've managed to transition into this new era. Now, the next few years, I'm hoping we'll see uh, more differentiation between <laughs> the, the DSPs. So, you know, to your point about the 30 somethings, you know, Amazon um, is gonna, I think, provide a service that's gonna be more useful for housewives um, and, and 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 their kids. And I say this as a, as an example because I see it with my wife and kids. You know, because when they're in the kitchen doing homework after school, and you know, my wife just shouts to Alexa, hmm. uh, you know, to play music. And my kids, they're never gonna search with their fingers. They're gonna just you know speak. You know, we're moving into the voice enabled world too. So, um, different th- 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 this. The variation from DSP to DSP is going to be exciting because each one is going to, you know, um, they can't just offer the same thing and everybody be like Spotify. Each one is going to have strengths and weaknesses and different um, technologies that serve different demographics. And mm-hmm. so as an industry, that's where I'm really excited to kind of, you know, we will develop more strategies that aren't about, you know, dropping the same music on, you know, in the same way onto every, every distributor. We're going to craft products that suit that platform, and it's the same thing with TikTok. You know, what I mean, I'm 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 having to educate labels right now how to uh, distribute music to TikTok in a way that makes sense for TikTok. It's got to be 15 seconds. It's not about the hook always. It's about you know, it's and and the demo is young, so you got to you know have something that they can actually relate to. You can't be talking about you know uh, about weddings when they're not getting married. So ultimately, I think. And this may not be a a direct answer to your question, but I think, you know, uh, as people, people's relationship with music and how they consume it is going to evolve and, you know, different companies are going to cater to different demographics. um, You know, some of them more old school models, some of them brand new models. um, But uh, it'll definitely be a great time in terms of uh, uh, variety and and options, you know.
0: Let's move on to the speed round then. So. Basically, we're just going to get your quick take analysis on some recent music industry headlines and trends. Try to keep it like tweet length, a couple, a couple sentences, but no worries if we go on tangents. All right. Uh, first one. YouTube reveals Google Play Music will shut down in October.
1: I thought it was last October. Um, I'm surprised that
2: it wasn't. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Snap strikes deals for licensed music in Snapchat app.
1: Uh, Good. Uh, You know, I I don't know if it's a TikTok uh, competitive move, but um, but yeah, that's great. You know, another platform to license our music.
0: Uh, Taylor Swift's surprise album drop. Good for her, you know, um, doing, you know, what
1: she wants when she wants, I think is, you know, kind of what her a strength of her brand. And um, it, I almost feel like part of it is, is well-timed with this difficult period, you know, to give consumers uh, something. And as an entertainer, you're supposed to be entertaining. So good for her to, you know, do this. Should it be considered indie, quote unquote? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if, if it helps the the marketing angle, sure. But uh, no, and then you know, indie major, you know, what does that mean anymore?
2: Fair enough. Um, okay, uh, recent moves by big names into children's music, and I'll expand on that a little bit. So, mm-hmm. Sync Tank wrote this great article, um, just last month about Marshmallow, DJ, uh, making melodies like a YouTube channel aimed at preschoolers, uh, with like nursery rhymes and like rave remixes. Um, you know, there's YouTube kids, Spotify kids, uh, and the major labels as well. Um, Warner partnering with Sesame, Universal um, partnering with Lego, Sony uh, launching a Magic Star label focusing on children's audio. Um, kind of your, your hot take on that.
1: I hadn't thought about this until you, you asked the question, but to me that uh, reflects the awareness of the growing popularity and penetration of voice. Because, again, these kids can now ask for what they want at a much younger age than they used to have to read or write and figure out how to type it in.
0: All right, final one. Spotify's latest quarterly report and the COVID effects on streaming with regard to Spotify. I forget. Uh, was the latest one that they were back up or down again or
2: Honestly, like th- th- when I read the summary of it, it was basically like, yeah, we dipped for a little bit, but everything's basically normal. Is is how I read it.
1: A, I wasn't surprised that it took a dip when people were home and able to consume video entertainment uh, more than, you know, maybe before. Um, But, um, and I'm glad that it's back up and I'm not surprised that it's back up uh, because people are more on the move again and, you know, consuming music uh, that way. Um, But ultimately, if anything, it says, you know, uh, music streaming is entrenched now and here to stay. And, and uh, you know, until I don't know, the next thing comes along anyway. And, um, and that's, ultimately a, a great reflection of our music or our industry being healthy. Um, at least if you work at a label, <laughs> um, everybody wants to go back to working at labels all of a sudden, go figure. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I, guess I was going to, you know, uh, shorten that a little bit. I think it, it's um, uh, despite a small dip and now a, a, a nice return, you know, I think it's, it's ultimately a good barometer for the, the, the health of recorded music right now.
0: So I think that's all we have. Cool, guys.
1: That was fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Thanks so much for chatting with us today. Ed, is there any way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? Find me on LinkedIn. You
1: know, and that's, a, that's a really great way to connect. And uh, I'm a huge, huge believer in, um, in mentoring. And, um, you know, part of being a digital guy was, you know, dragging my peers into the future. And so, you know, the younger de- generations don't need dragging they're in the future and they you know so they actually help my advance my agenda so you know uh, i i always make it a point to to help young young you know business people music industry people if i can because you know i want them to move on and, and or move forward and, and take over as quickly as possible it'll make my my job easier <laughs>
2: Well, real quick follow on to that, Ed, because, you know, you did go to graduate school as well in, in, in the music business. Do you have any advice for kind of young music business students um, who are maybe just graduated or are about to graduate soon? COVID
1: accepted and all the, 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 the issues that, you know, we're seeing with, with COVID. Once this thing lifts, um, I think my advice to to kids coming out of college and looking to get into the music industry or really just looking, you know, whether it's a master's program or or, or anything uh, or whether they're just know not going to college, but getting into the music industry is like, um, you're going to have to, you know, pay your dues and you're going to have to, you know, uh, start at the bottom, but you're lucky, you know, the industry is growing again. Um, if you were coming out of college five years ago, you'd be entering an industry that was in a 17 year decline. So Um, The the tide has turned, you know, the new music industry is being born right now, so it's yours to jump in and and do something with it and and finish pushing out the old guard, um, you know, and and really, you know, changing the music industry to what it's gonna be the next, you know, growth era. I think we're, you know, uh, it's a really exciting time for that.
0: How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com, and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.